0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Global property is worth more than all the stocks and bonds in the world combined. It's a colossal asset class and the main source of most people's wealth. After a remarkable run-up during the pandemic, house prices have now started to drop. But how far could they fall? And what effect
1: could it have on the economy? And in today's dumb question of the week, is your house an investment? Okay, let's get into it. There are a few topics which are more economically and politically sensitive than house prices, especially in the UK. Now, we are going to talk about house prices across the world, but I think to begin with, we'll focus on the UK because it is quite indicative, I think, of what's going on in a lot of Western
0: housing markets. So, Robin, what's the latest situation? Well, for a long time, everyone was expecting that house prices would fall because inflation is very high. That effectively takes money out of people's pockets. We've got weaker growth. And then the huge surge we had in house prices after the pandemic has kind of ebbed. All the people that are going to move to the suburbs or out of the cities have basically done so. And all of those government stimulus schemes, which were helping first-time buyers, have effectively had their effect. So now I'd expect that things would start to fade, but it's taken a lot longer than some people expected, longer than I expected. But we are finally starting to see month-on-month house price falls. On a year-on-year basis, it's still positive. So if we look at the latest Halifax house price index, that shows that in December, house prices on average fell by about 1.5%. It was actually a bigger fall in November, which was 2.4%.
1: Yeah, so I think it shows that prices across the UK on average have fallen by 4.3% since the peak, which was in August.
0: Yeah, but year on year, they're still up by 2%.
1: But you can always use those year on year numbers to sort of mask the (laughs) latest trends, can't you, and pretend that everything's fine.
0: It's funny because if people want to tell a story about catastrophic falling house prices to get clicks, you know, they're going to use the monthly data. I want clicks, Robin. It's a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) The world is ending. I think the thing to point
1: out here, though, is we're talking in nominal terms. You say year on year, it's positive. But if you do it in real terms, which is kind of what matters, and adjust for inflation, prices are actually down around 8% year on year. That's if you use the old RPI measure of inflation.
0: So I think you're right. It's pretty shocking. But you could say that with many different assets, including cash returns, if you take it in real terms, are going to be atrocious.
1: No one likes to look at stuff in real terms (laughs) when inflation's high.
0: (laughs) Yeah, nobody likes to feel poorer, that's for sure.
1: And the other thing is, from that Halifax survey, they also offered some guidance of where they think house prices are going to go in the UK. And they're expecting a fall in nominal terms of around 8% across 2023.
0: And that's fairly conservative. I've seen estimates which are closer to 20 or 30%. But that would be very unusual for the UK. We haven't seen falls that large for a long time. The
1: point Halifax makes is if we got an 8% fall, that would only take house prices back to the level they were in April 2021. It's because we've had this massive run-up, right? So you've got a lot of leeway for a fall without pushing too many people into negative equity.
0: There are some pretty startling analogs here with the stock market. So if you look at the US, for example, you know, there's been a big fall. But if you compare it to the pre-pandemic levels, it's not so bad. We just had a crazy two years, didn't we, across almost
1: every asset class. But it is it all because of stimulus, right, from the central banks, from fiscal policy, from governments. If you look at M2, the broad money supply, now I know, Ramin, you don't like to look at this as indicative.
0: But look at it. Look at the graph. It went up massively. There's just loads more money out there. But you remember how that money's made. A lot of it's made through loans, things like mortgages. And money creation happens when people are feeling positive. And I think many people felt positive after the pandemic started to ebb.
1: But M2 is now falling for the first
0: time in, I think, decades, right? And credit availability, obviously, is lower. Interest rates are much higher. So I think it's pretty much on the cards that we're going to get a fairly decent correction.
1: And I think we should say it's not just the Halifax survey, which is showing the prices have turned around. So Rightmove, which is the property listing site, their data is showing that average asking prices for properties rose by 8.1% in the first half of last year, but then in the second half, they fell back by 2.6%. So that's showing a quite a similar story that the peak was, you know, August, in the summer. When did you buy? In the summer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we kind of knew it was going to be the peak, you know, you could always guarantee it would happen that way. But people move because of circumstances, they don't move because, you know, it's a time to trade. Yeah. You can't be tactical with a house move, not for the house you live in anyway.
1: And the other thing is the mortgage approval data from the Bank of England, that fell 20% between October and November. So all the signs are, yeah, we're at the start of a decline in house prices. But the question is, you know, how far are they going to fall, right?
0: And I think the level of interest rates is a big driver here. So if you look at house price growth, typically you'd find it grows most rapidly when credit's most easily available and also when it's cheap. And we've just come out off a 20-year period when we had incredibly low interest rates. So I think, you know, there's not much positive in the housing market in the UK or anywhere else at the moment, other than a lack of supply. That's the only kind of supportive factor at the moment. So let's talk about the cost
1: of mortgages then, because that's presumably the main factor here in causing the price falls, is that, like you say, interest rates have gone up. But it's not interest rates directly that drive mortgage rates, is it?
0: That's right. Certainly for the UK, we have a strange market relative to the rest of the world where we fix for fairly short periods. So in the US, you can get a 30-year mortgage, which is fixed. In the UK, you can only fix for two to five years, usually. We're not the only market like that. Much of Europe is like that as well. Yeah, Europe's similar. And the way these mortgages are structured is usually based on swap rates. So these are interest rate swaps, which are not the same as government bonds. And swap rates spiked hugely after the mini budget. They've fallen back a lot now, but that's how the bank essentially lays off the interest rate risk by entering into one of these derivatives. So it's a swap rate which really drives what you're going to pay for your mortgage for a fixed period.
1: Is that the cost of the bank hedging its liability?
0: Yeah, so if you're a financial institution, if you have a kind of securitized derivative which nullifies your interest rate risk... So effectively, you don't care whether rates increase or decrease, then that's called an interest rate swap. And that's what they use to reduce their risk to almost zero, their interest rate risk.
1: Yeah, so they're only taking your credit risk, basically, the risk that you stop paying the mortgage.
0: Which is minimised by the fact that they own your house effectively. So it is a collateralized loan. So from that point of view, it's a great business, you know. Yeah. You're taking fairly low risk as long as house prices aren't falling. And this is why, you know, the banks are probably pretty worried at the moment that there is going to be a big correction, because if there is, then suddenly they're running a bigger risk in terms of their counterparty risk, despite the collateralization of their loans.
1: So I think that's the primary reason prices have turned around, right, is the cost of mortgages. But then there's also other things, isn't there? So the cost of living crisis and inflation just means people have less to spend.
0: But again, this is about counterparty risk from the point of view of the banks. If credit availability is lower and banks are being much more finicky about who they lend their money to, because in a falling market, you don't want a very high loan-to-value. So if people aren't familiar with this, it's the idea of, you know, if the house is worth 200000 if your loan-to-value is very high, then you're borrowing a larger percentage of the house's value. And that means a bigger counterparty risk from the point of view of the bank, How do you think the
1: bank assessed your counterparty risk when you got your mortgage?
0: Well, we're pretty low because we've got a very low LTV because, you know, I sold a house previously and I've ploughed the money from that into this one. So we're pretty low risk, but it also depends on your credit history. And obviously I have a completely unblemished credit history.
1: (laughs) I would have thought nothing else, from him. And I think the question around mortgage rates now is, have they actually already peaked? So like you mentioned, they have started to come down because swap rates have started to come down, even though the Bank of England is still on the path of
0: increasing interest rates. I think many people are still deluded that we're going to go back to the world in which interest rates were very close to zero. But that's just not going to happen. Those days are over. And I think money is going to be more expensive from here on out. So people are just going to have to get used to having a higher debt servicing cost. Because, you know, it was so long that we had such low interest rates that people just think it's normal. But you're right, I think they have pretty much peaked for now. But I think what some people might not understand is that
1: how is the Bank of England still raising
0: its interest rates, whereas mortgage interest rates are starting to fall? Because those fixed rates, as we said, are kind of related to but not identical to the bank rate because they're set by interest rate swaps, which is a completely different market. And why are swap rates falling? Well, swap rates peaked at a huge level, and that's because we had the mini-budget, which made them spike. So we're just seeing the spike start to fade now. So the moron premium, which is what the FT called it, is the extra interest rate, which the UK has to pay because of the disastrous mini-budget. And that moron premium is slowly starting to dissipate. And it is quite slow. I thought it would be over sooner. But as that comes down, then yeah, we're paying less of a premium in the swap market and people are paying less for their mortgages.
1: Yes. If you look at the data, the rates are still much higher than they were a year ago, but have started to come down. So average two-year fixed rate mortgages are around 5.8% at the end of 2022, which is up from 2.4% at the end of 2021. So that's a big jump. And it's no surprise, is it, that house prices have gone into decline now?
0: Yeah, and I think you know 5% for a mortgage probably will be the new normal. That's kind of historically what you'd see for, I don't know, two-year swaps. Maybe 4 or 5% is not unreasonable.
1: And I think there are falls about to come. So the FT reported that Nationwide and TSB, those are two lenders in the UK, they're about to cut their mortgage rates by up to 1.3 percentage points, actually. That's quite a lot. But it seems to be mainly focused on people with strong loan-to-value ratios.
0: You can see why if they're trying to be cautious. If prices are falling, then what they don't want is a loan book, which is just full of repossessed houses. Because in theory, they can get their money back. But if suddenly the market's swamped with repossessed properties, then it's going to be really hard to shift those houses. I think the
1: point is banks don't really want to repossess your house, do they? They're not in the business of owning and
0: selling homes. Now, once the loans go delinquent, it's a bit of a disaster for them. So effectively, what they're doing here is being proactive in trying to stop that happening. It all sort of begs the
1: question, how far could house prices fall? So firstly, what's the central case? Is it that kind of 8% figure that Halifax is quoting for 2023?
0: So for PensionCraft members, we've got a model which does really simple extrapolation based on two things. One of them is the average UK income. And the central case there is that it's going to grow by just under 2% per year. And then at the same time, we've got the house price to income ratio. So that's a measure of how much you have to pay in terms of multiple of your income in order to buy a house on average.
1: And that's the variable that's been at record rates for quite a long time now, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just pushing seven in the UK, which is the highest it's been since 1980. So seven times your annual
1: salary to buy a house.
0: Yeah. And it's never been as expensive in those terms. So if you extrapolate those two variables, our central case is that the house price to income ratio kind of drifts downwards slowly. So that's going to fall by about 1% per year.
1: Classic mean reversion, Romin.
0: Yeah, because price to income is mean reverting, right? So that's the variable which is mean reverting. The one which isn't mean reverting is the income variable. And so, you know, you combine those two And the central case is actually pretty flat, right? 0.7% growth. In nominal terms, right? In nominal terms. So you haven't adjusted for inflation. The pessimistic case is that it's going to fall by about 7% per year. And that's assuming income shrinkage and also price to income ratios, which mean revert quite sharply.
1: And over how many years would we be falling by 7% per year? Because in an individual year, it doesn't sound so bad, but if it happened over and over again, it would go down a lot.
0: So the horizon here is three years, so that's going to be three years at 7%, so chunky.
1: Yeah, over 20%.
0: But that's the kind of pessimistic case.
1: But that doesn't seem unreasonable as a pessimistic case to me.
0: I think it would just bring us back into line with, you know, where we were in the mid-2010s. And dare we say, what's an optimistic case? Is there such a thing for the UK? (laughs) So the optimistic case is 7% growth. I mean, that's optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) But in that case, you just kind of throw caution to the wind. Price to income ratios go up to eight times over a three year period. And UK income grows pretty sharply.
1: I mean, that's a wide band, isn't it? 7% up or 7% down. But are you backing the central case? Is that your genuine belief?
0: No, I think the reason why probably not is because we've got the cost of living crisis combined with the higher interest rates. That's much more likely to push us into the bearish case. I guess my question would be,
1: If we were to get a really negative outcome, would that be dependent on some kind of shock to the system? Would we need to see the rate of unemployment pick up a lot or some kind of economic accident and credit crunch?
0: Well, those certainly wouldn't help. But I think we're already on a kind of downward trajectory. So if there was some kind of crisis like that, then, you know, just accelerate what's pretty much a foregone conclusion, I think. There's got to be some kind of shakeout here. And it's interesting, if you look at the comments to the YouTube videos I make about housing, a lot of people reply quite angrily because they say, look, I've been locked out of the housing market. I just can't buy a house. You're talking about to crash as if it's a bad thing. But of course, for me, it would be a great thing. So I think that's the way to look at it. It's not just a negative. It allows people who've been priced out of the market to finally get onto the housing ladder if they want to.
1: I mean, people are always going to find things to be angry about in your YouTube comments for me.
0: <laughs> well, generally, it's you know, not that angry, but those are the most
1: negative comments. I saw someone was once angry about you having chapped lips. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they comment on dress, how I look, the hair, a the whole lot. But anger usually comes with a housing market or crypto or gold. Those are the three that kind of really upset people for some reason. But certainly if we look back in history, you, know, you look at the biggest drawdowns in property in the UK, and this is based on nationwide data going back to 1952, the longest, deepest drawdown. See if you can guess. I'm going to guess the early 1990s. Yep, so 1990 to 98, that was the deepest. So that was a 20% peak to trough fall, which lasted eight years. And then the next biggest was 2008 to 2014, and that was about 19%. And it lasted just under seven years.
1: So in terms of nominal falls... In the UK, 20% down in nominal terms seems to be about the worst it's been.
0: Yeah. And if you look at the US, the data goes back much further, because Robert Schiller's actually gone way back in history. And there it was pretty catastrophic in the nineteen thirties. So 1926 to 1944 was a drawdown period where the peak to trough fall was 30% and the length of that drawdown was 18 years.
1: What's interesting, though, about the 30s is it was a deflationary period. So maybe in real terms, it didn't actually look so bad. Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> but then, you know, there was another one at the turn of the century, 1895 to 1906. That was 11 years. That was a 21% fall. And then 2006 to 2017, that was 27% in a decade. But I think we don't really remember a big, deep drawdown in the UK, except for the 90s. I think it was an interesting point you made
1: about young people being a little bit angry about high house prices and how, yeah, in the media, it's always portrayed as house prices falling is just intrinsically a negative thing. But I often think, you know,
0: can lower house prices actually be a good thing for the economy at large? Because it's a non-productive store of capital. You know, this isn't stuff that's used to make things or produce things or educate people. It's kind of dead capital. Yeah, So really it's kind of non-productive thing and a lot of effort and thought and kind of joy goes into the property market when it's not been very productive. A lot of TV shows. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. I mean, it was almost, you remember, that was about 10 years ago. It was just wall-to-wall house porn. It was just kind of Yeah, it really was.
1: And it is definitely the thing people focus on. Because I often think young people spend so much time and money saving for a deposit, right, to buy a house, rather than starting a business often or investing in productive assets. And it's not good for the UK economy, arguably. A lot of people say that our concentration of wealth in the housing market and the inability as well for people to move around the country and move to where the productive jobs are, that is a big drag on
0: our economy. And if you look at the size of the housing market, you know, as a proportion of the economy, it's it's huge. Yeah, so if you look at the US, the residential real estate market is worth about $53 trillion. And you compare that with the stock markets in the US, that's only $47 trillion. So it's an absolutely huge market.
1: And in the UK, I think it's probably even more skewed, isn't it? Because our stock market's not done that well and our housing market has. So, you know, we've really tilted our economy towards property.
0: And what really amazes me is what proportion of people own their house outright without any mortgage at all. And it's over 35%. It's roughly 36% in the UK. Yeah, that is quite high, isn't it? And you compare that with the number of people who fund their house with a mortgage. That's only about 28% of households.
1: And the rest are a mix of social and private
0: renters. That's right. So privately rented is about 19%. Social rent is about 17%. So more people own outright than have mortgages by quite a large margin. And that does provide some stability in an era of rising interest rates,
1: because people who own their house without a mortgage presumably are not interest rate sensitive.
0: Yeah. So they don't care whether interest rates increase or decrease. They just want the value of their house to stay high. That's right. All those old people. (laughs) (laughs) And it is generally old people. Sitting in their mansions.
1: That's the thing, though, in the UK, it's not mansions. If you look at our floor space compared to
0: other countries, we have tiny houses and we pay so much for them. It's kind of crazy. I can't believe it. You know, you walk through our neighbourhood, you know, when I'm walking my dog, you see these tiny little cottages, semi-detached. (laughs) 800,000. Yeah, and there's literally like, you know, two Mercedes in the uh, driveway. You just think, well, how did it come to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the point, isn't it, around house prices going down. It can be for good reasons and bad reasons. The good way out of high house prices would be building a lot more good quality homes, right? Increasing supply, getting more people into homes they own. The bad way out of it is people just have to pay a lot more for their debt servicing costs
0: because mortgages are higher. But it was noticeable, you know, when I lived in America, it was just incredible how much bigger the houses were and how beautifully built they are. I just love American houses. Yeah, you like
1: your idea of a picket fence and a dog on the front lawn, don't you? But I think we should remember that house prices going down is not all good news, right? There's certainly a lot of bad effects it can have.
0: The wealth effect is what most people quote, because if people feel poorer, then they're less likely to spend. And that means that, you know, it has a negative effect on consumption when house prices fall. Is that just a psychological effect? So people think, oh, my paper wealth is
1: down, therefore I'm not going to go out and buy a car or go on holiday. Is that really what it is?
0: In the UK, it is. I think in America, less so because you can get a second mortgage and that's based on the value of your property. But, you know, I think in the UK, we don't usually do that, which is probably a good thing.
1: And maybe there are similar effects in the UK with buy-to-let properties and people unable to take so much equity out of them and equity release, I think... Fewer people do that once house prices have come down. So therefore, less money in the economy for consumption.
0: And when you retire, I guess, you could say that you can release equity that way by moving to a smaller house outside a city.
1: And the other negative
0: effect is on a specific cohort,
1: isn't it? It's people who bought at or near the top. They can go into negative equity and be effectively trapped in their property. Yeah, like me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've got a high loan-to-value ratio, you're not going to negative equity. It's often the young people who bought at 90% plus loan-to-value
0: ratios. Yeah, the mortgage, I was looking at the mortgage rates from the Bank of England. And if you do have a 90% LTV, the rates are so much higher. Because the risk is so much greater, right? Yeah, that's right. So I think for those people in particular, now it's going to be particularly expensive in order to fund those houses. But yeah, it's not a pleasant thing. And psychologically, it can be quite distressing because it's probably the biggest investment you'll make in that whole of your life. And if that's going down in value, it kind of makes you feel like the whole effort's kind of worthless. And you're thinking, well, what am I working for? You know, I'm trapped in this house, I've got a big debt to pay off, and I paid too much for the house. You know, it makes you feel bad. So psychologically, I think it has a cost. And I think there are also macroeconomic implications, aren't there?
1: So the construction sector is an important part of the economy in and of itself. And that tends to slow down when prices are falling because, you know, property developers can make less money.
0: Yeah, there'll be a trickle down, definitely. And all the services that go around the housing market. So if you look at China, for example, some estimates are that the property market makes up a fifth of their GDP, either directly or indirectly. So there, it's even more important. And I think there was a famous academic
1: paper that made the point that housing is the business cycle to a large degree.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's usually a bit of a red flag. If the housing market becomes a large proportion of the economy, it usually happens just before a crash. For example, if you look at Spain, just before their crash. Yeah, and Ireland. Yeah, and Ireland. And if you look at China right now,
1: also problematic. So maybe let's look around the world then. Outside of the UK, what's the situation?
0: Well, if you look at the OECD's data, There are other regions where house prices became egregiously expensive. And here you can do it based on rental income or you can look at house price to income ratios, which we noted for the UK. You know, a couple of the pension crafters I speak to are based in Canada, and they just are shocked at how much house prices have gone up there. Of course now it's gone into reverse. So Canada would be one of the places, Australia would be another. There's actually a bubble risk map, which is produced by UBS. And Vancouver, Toronto, so Canada we already mentioned, Amsterdam's another, Frankfurt's another, Munich's another, Tel Aviv, also an expensive market, Hong Kong, Tokyo, all of these are very overpriced when you consider things like incomes.
1: Yeah, and it's often in the cities, isn't it? If you look at it on a country level and you look at the house price increase from Q4 2019 to Q4 2021, so that two-year period where the market just went crazy. House prices in New Zealand were up 46%. In the US, it was 31%. In parts of Europe, like the Netherlands and Luxembourg, again, 31%. So this really was a
0: global phenomenon. And it's so interesting, if you read the reports, it's very similar stories. You know, people were moving out of cities, and it was because of the pandemic. They wanted to have more living space. The fact you could work from home made a big difference for white-collar workers. And I think that's a big change in the way we work, but also the places where we live. But what's also interesting is the policymaker's response. So you look at Sweden's central bank boss. He says that he's sitting on top of a volcano with monetary policy. You never want to hear that, (laughs) do you, from a central bank boss? (laughs) It's about to blow. (laughs) But it must be like having a kind of red self-destruct button when they decide to raise interest rates, because they know what is going to happen.
1: Yeah. Sweden's an interesting case study, so maybe let's just take a look at that. So house prices in Sweden are down 17% since the peak last year. And the central bank, which you just mentioned, was forecasting a 20% fall overall for this cycle. Now that's got to look optimistic now when we're already down 17%. So this is the
0: difficult situation for central banks, which is they can't be too gloomy. You know, they have to kind of talk up the economy. But at the same time, they have to take away the punch bowl and this is where we see the exuberance this is the equivalent of dancing on tables at a party and if you take away the punch bowl that's what's going to be affected first it's going to be the housing market
1: yeah and i think Sweden's quite interesting when you compare it to the UK because it does give a sense of the different factors which influence which housing markets are going to have the biggest falls or be worst affected so one factor is clearly the percentage of the population that actually has a mortgage, right? So in Sweden and the UK, about two thirds of people own their own home. But in Sweden, 80% of those have a mortgage, where in the UK, it's around
0: half of homeowners who have a mortgage. That's a big difference. That's really important, the structure of the market. And the other really important point is the proportion of loans which are on a variable rate. So three quarters of UK mortgages were fixed rate loans in 2021. Whereas in Sweden, variable rates are the norm. So in the five years up to 2018, three quarters of the new loans were variable rates.
1: Yeah, that's a big difference, isn't it? Basically, Sweden's housing market is super sensitive to rate rises. And guess what happened this year? It feeds through (laughs) immediately. Yeah, And of course, household indebtedness matters a great deal too. So what do you mean by that? Is it the kind of debt burden families are
0: holding? If you think of it in terms of debt servicing cost as a proportion of household income, that is high in countries like Sweden. So you can measure the equivalent of balance sheet leverage for a company, but for a household. So if you look at Sweden, the household debt to disposable income ratio, roughly 200%. And if you compare that with the UK, it was 156% in 2008, but it's only around 134% right now. So much lower than Sweden's 200%.
1: Yeah, so all these factors together, in short, what it kind of means is that housing markets that are more exposed to interest rate rises because of higher debt levels or more variable rate loans, then they're going to be the worst affected, probably.
0: Yeah, because all central banks are tightening policy, but the effect will be most immediate and largest in these countries, which have lots of variable rate debt and high debt to income ratios. So let's look at
1: this chart then. Which countries have the most variable rate mortgages? Sweden, like we said, is up there, Norway, Australia, 81%. But then there are some markets which have very few variable rate mortgages. So the US, something like 15% of the market. And luckily for New Zealand, it's low, 18%. So although they have crazy house price bubble, a lot of them are on fixed rate loans, at least short term fixes.
0: The Netherlands as well, that's a kind of very overheated market, but very few mortgages are variable rate, something like 16%.
1: The thing is, a lot of these markets, we're calling them fixed rate mortgages, but they're not like the US where people are fixed for 30 years. They're fixed for two or five years, maybe 10
0: years. And so the effect will come through from higher interest rates. It's just a little bit delayed. Which is good in a way because it means that the monetary policy is not going to immediately collapse the market. It'll be kind of gradual as people come off their fixed period. But
1: it is a dilemma for central banks, like you say, when they're hiking and knowing that they're going to be causing a lot of pain for people and potentially causing a housing market crash with all the different effects that can have on the economy. So your mate Robin Wigglesworth in FT Alphaville made an interesting point, I think. What did
0: he say? Mortgage holders tend to be wealthier, he says, and tend to vote. Mortgage rates are therefore uniquely politically sensitive in a way that other forms of debt are not. Normies don't actually care what 10-year government bond yields do they do care about the cost of their mortgage.
1: I mean, absolutely true. You ask a person on the street, what's the 10-year government bond yield? Unless they've happened to do a Vox Pop with you randomly in Amersham or wherever you are.
0: No one's going to have any idea. It's not like asking someone the price of milk. But I think this idea of mortgage dominance is a cool one.
1: I mean, that's the other point Robin Wigglesworth made, wasn't it? That central banks may be constrained by this fear of mortgage debt
0: sensitivity of over-borrowed middle classes to higher rates puts a constraint on monetary policy. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, because people talk about fiscal dominance,
1: don't they? And this is kind of a flavour of that. So fiscal dominance is the idea that...
0: Well, if the government has borrowed a lot, they won't want the central bank to raise interest rates because it'll massively increase their debt servicing cost. And they could potentially put political pressure on the central bank to keep rates low.
1: And here's a kind of indirect version of that, where the voting population with high mortgages are putting political pressure on the central bank to not get them to raise interest rates. So it's kind of the same thing, but one step removed.
0: Or maybe they do it indirectly via their politicians.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I mean. And it would be interesting if inflation, let's say, did stay higher. So let's say 4 or 5% for a long time. At some point, central banks are going to wimp out, aren't they, and stop raising rates because of you know bankrupting a large proportion of the country if you got up to you know seven eight nine percent base rates you would you would be bankrupting people
0: well, I don't know there's a kind of trade-off of risks here and inflation's pretty bad you know inflation at ten percent is awful it's really like uh, being stuck between a rock and a hard place.
1: I mean I know we think inflation is not going to persist at these high levels, but if it did, if that tail risk happened, it would be a real dilemma, I think
0: yeah. But, you know, you've got to trade off what the effect is on the working population. And I think the fact that over a third of UK households own their property outright means that the central bank probably would be willing to keep interest rates high for a long period of time. People assume nowadays that it's their right to own a house, but, you know, that's not the case. And it's interesting, in Germany, they don't actually see home ownership as necessarily a good thing. A lot of people rent, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do. And a lot of people have the goal of eventually building their own house rather than buying an existing house. It's a different way of looking at it, but
0: they have much
1: more secure tenancies generally. And in some cities, things like rent controls, which, you know, I'm not necessarily advocating for them, but it's probably less precarious to be a renter there than it is in the UK and especially somewhere like London where I've rented in the past and landlords get away
0: with a lot. And you can be ousted at any moment, which is very insecure and horrible. And a lot of them wouldn't let you have a dog. I don't I don't like that at all. And I guess that's the thing we
1: haven't really talked about here is buy to let. The difference now versus previous housing drawdowns in the nineties or the seventies is that there are a lot more people with buy-to-let properties and mortgages which tend to have a very high loan-to-value ratio and are often on interest-only mortgages where the balance is not being paid off. And so they're going to be very interest rate sensitive, I would think.
0: Yeah. And of course, the rental market in some regions is hugely undersupplied now because less people are willing to have buy-to-let properties. But my point here
1: is that if the UK housing market was going to have a big crash, I think look at the buy-to-let sector. If there's going to be forced sales, it's probably that part of the market which moves first would be my guess.
0: Now, we mentioned the trackers, and they allow you to monitor things like macroeconomic conditions, but also where markets are right now. Now, if you want to get access to those, you can join our membership. To find out more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com.
1: Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Is your house an investment? Now, I think this is one of the things which a lot of people actually get het up about, don't they? Because a lot of people don't like to think about their home as an investment. I didn't buy this thing to see it go up in value, though
0: that would be nice. (laughs) I bought it as somewhere to live. I think a related question is whether your house is an asset or a liability, in the sense that an asset would generate income. A liability generates costs. And if you live in a house, then essentially it's just a source of expenses. You have to pay for maintenance, you have to pay for services, you have to pay taxes for the property, and of course you have to pay the financing costs if you've got a mortgage. So certainly it would fall onto the kind of liability side of the balance sheet.
1: Well, isn't it both, Ramin? Like, yeah, I get that. You've got all these outgoings and these costs, but it's undoubtedly an asset. Like, we've talked about how it's people's primary asset in terms of a share of their wealth.
0: But think about the cash flows, right? So if you think of it as a bond, it's a bond where I'm going to sell you something where you've got to pay a huge upfront payment. You're going to have to pay to hold it. So it's got a negative carry cost. At the end of a very long period of time, you could sell it for a profit, which is unknown. Would you buy that? (laughs) Well, we
1: have done, Robin. So are we the fools here? (laughs) But what I would like to say as a counterpoint, you say cash flows are negative. Interesting point, right? Yes, like literally out of your bank account, cash flows are negative, but you've got to live somewhere, right? So if you're not buying, you're renting, and then you're paying, let's say, £2,000 a month in rent. What you're doing when you're owning is you're effectively paying that money to yourself, right? You actually do have an income. It's called owner equivalent rent, and it's untaxed, which is beautiful. So if you're thinking about it, let's say I own a property and I'm renting out to someone else, and I'm also renting my own house to live in. The rental income I'm getting from my own property is being taxed by the government. So it can't just completely cover the cost of my current rent, which is kind of crazy, right? In theory, from an economic fairness point of view, you should be paying tax on your own equivalent rent, right? The rent you're paying to yourself when you own. So there's kind of is a cash flow. It's just hidden. What do you think?
0: Mm, I don't buy that.
1: You don't buy it, (laughs) but it is true.
0: (laughs) But look, I mean, in terms of the actual physical cash flows, they're negative. There's no denying that when you look at my bank statements. (laughs) (laughs) But look, I mean, some of the things you could use your house to generate income from, I mean, if you work in the house, you know, like I do, then I guess it's a source of revenue. If you have solar panels on your land, then that would generate an income. So there are ways you can generate income from the property. So you could let out a room, something like that, maybe. Maybe. You know, a cottage on our extensive grounds here in Holmer Green.
1: Yeah. Okay, here's another way of phrasing a similar question. So Eric Brynjolfsson, the name we can never pronounce, the economist from MIT, he got into an argument on the internet with other economists about whether owning a house makes you long the housing market. So to quote him, If you own the exact amount of housing that you expect to use, then your net asset position is neutral. If you don't own a home, then you are effectively short the housing market. In contrast, the person who owns one home is hedged. If house prices go up or down, it doesn't affect their consumption. What do you think about that argument? That we're born short the housing market because we need housing. And by buying a house, we've effectively gone neutral, neither long or short.
0: Interesting. I know that people think that way. I don't, but yeah. In the investment banking world, people used to say that. They used to say, I'm selling my house because I think house prices are going down. I'm going short the market. I'll be in rental accommodation. So they literally said that. But, you know, I don't think it's like that, simply because if you short an asset, then what you do is you borrow it, you sell it, and then you buy it back. No, that's not what's going on here. When you're renting a house, you're borrowing the house, no? But being born short, the market, because you have dependency on, you need property to live in. Yeah. I think that's a kind of flaky argument. I don't buy that. I agree, because... If you go
1: down that route, you can make that argument about anything. We're born short the food market, right? We need yeah. food to live. Like you can make it <laughs> about anything, but people only think about it in context of houses.
0: But I know that's the way people think. You know, If you're outside the housing market, if you are renting and you see house prices shooting up, it creates this feeling of FOMO, this massive FOMO feeling. So you do feel as if you're short the market. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even if you're buying productive assets like equity, which increase in value more than the property market, you probably still feel hard done by. And I think the other point
1: is what we talked about earlier about size of houses, like in America, they're massive in Britain, they're small, like your housing need, if you want to put it that way is not fixed, right? You can have a small flat or a massive mansion, right? So saying you're born short the housing market. Well, what do you mean by that? Like
0: how big a house? It really, you can live in a tiny one bedroom place. I saw a tweet about this recently and said that um, the housing market's one that really hasn't benefited from technology. Effectively, the housing market is the same as it was a thousand, two thousand years ago. You know, there's no real innovation there. Well, we're not in mud huts anymore, are we? But I don't know what it would take, you know, what form the innovation would take in terms of where we could live and how we could live. But I think it's true that there isn't the same kind of innovation in the property market as there is in, say, technology. One of the things might be houses that you can print, you know, like 3D printed houses, which people have created now, but it's not widespread. But something that would radically change the economics of home ownership, but also home construction. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I often think there's a lot of redundancy, right, in houses. We've talked
1: before about cars, right, and how they're sat on the drive 90% of the time and pointless. Well, the same is true of your oven (laughs) or your dishwasher right i mean no one wants to share a kitchen with people but like if you had those shared facilities that would actually be more efficient anyway everyone's gonna hate me for suggesting that
0: (laughs) no there are other there are other ways i mean you know i read a lot of science fiction as you know michael and you know one of the things i read about when i was a kid was people living in the ocean you know you can have floating cities and suddenly a large proportion of the planet you know it's two-thirds water effectively you've got new landmass which you just make yourself but these are the kind of innovations which I'm talking about <laughs> you sound like kevin costner here waterworld <laughs> you know people always say well land is something that's worth buying because you can't create more of it well actually you can you know you can literally live on a kind of floating platform and live anywhere you like
1: Yeah. Holland's created more of it. And I always think land, you can't create more of it. The main reason that's a flawed argument is that we can build up. That's the innovation we've actually made in housing over the last 2000 years is skyscrapers.
0: Or built down. Hobbit homes. I love those.
1: (laughs) But do you know what I mean? We've taken out that physical constraint to some degree, but we've gone way off course, Robin. The original (laughs) question was, is your house an investment? Now, The article I want to reference here is by one of my favorite authors on finance, J.L. Collins, and he wrote one called Why Your House is a Terrible Investment. So his points were basically, yeah, like you said, it's a drain on your cash indefinitely. Houses are illiquid, very hard to sell, and they have high transaction costs when you do. They're completely undiversified. They live on one street with one set of neighbors in one currency in one period of time. They're immobile. If you don't like your neighbors, you can't often pick up your house and move it. (laughs) They're fragile and easily damaged or expensively insured. And here we go. Their returns, their long-term returns, what we care about if we're talking about investments, are generally lower than equity.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look at the Dimson Marsh Staunton data, very clear. House prices have been lower than equity growth for a very long period of time.
1: It doesn't feel like that sometimes because of the enormous bubble we've run up in the housing market recently. But you have to remember, it's not always like that. The one thing that I think often makes people think housing is a wonderful investment always is that it's probably the only way your average person can access a ridiculous amount of leverage, which in a rising market boosts your returns hugely.
0: That's right. And if you take the leverage into account, then you know, you can boost the return to anything you want. But leverage when the market goes down not so fun (laughs) so personally you know i don't really think that a house is an investment that's not the way i see it not the house you live in if you have buy to let completely different story then it is an investment
1: i mean yeah if you buy buy to let not as an investment what are you doing (laughs) <laughs> it's going to end badly. The thing is, you get a lot of accidental landlords, don't you know? Where you buy a house to live in and then you have to move away for whatever reason, work or family, whatever it might be. And now maybe you don't want to sell your house or you can't sell it at that time. You become a landlord. So now it is an investment, even though you didn't intend it to be one. Yeah or no? I'd say no. <laughs> what, because I just undermined your argument? <laughs>
0: Yeah, in that case, I guess you would be accidentally moving into an investment. But, you know, when you live in the house, is that an investment? Is that the way people think about it? Is that the way people should think about it? Probably not. It's based on your needs rather than your investment return.
1: Yeah, I do agree with that. Like when we are buying a house as a home, yeah, we're not buying it primarily as an investment at least. But I think it is important to understand the financial implications of your decision to buy a house, whether that means you can invest less or spend less even if that isn't ultimately the reason you're
0: buying it. And it soaks up so much of your capital and so much of your kind of financial capacity when you have to service your debt, that it certainly is important to understand the impact it's going to have on your other investments. I think the thing with houses is that you can show
1: them off to people, they can't you? So a lot of people prefer it to stocks or bonds or whatever. You just say, look, here's my house. Come around, have a barbecue. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's a nice yeah. thing to have. But I try to counter that by whenever someone has told me, oh, I've just bought an old house, I say, oh, unlucky. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to see my stock portfolio? Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address,
0: MHR at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a pensioncraft production. Co-hosted and executive produced by
1: Ramin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors
0: are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.